It's episode seven of the Capu Blues podcast. Brent Mutis here from the Capu Department of Athletics and Recreation. Thanks for joining us once again after a long layoff. So far, we've had one guest from each of the Blues teams, and this time we're doing something a little different as we go with the head coach, current head coach of the Blues men's soccer team, Adam Day. He's got quite a story from the summer where he brought back a gold medal from the Tokyo Olympics. We hope you enjoy this episode, and without further ado, here we go with episode seven. We're with Blues men's soccer head coach Adam Day for episode 7 of the Capu Blues podcast. Adam, thanks so much for taking some time to join us today and reminisce on your soccer career. No worries. Thanks for having me. All right. So I'm going to take you right back to the start. Um, Where did you grow up and when did football kind of become a big part of your life? Yeah, so I grew up in uh, southeast London in the UK and... um, you know, I, I think really just as, as young as I can remember, uh, football was always there. I have an older brother um, who, you know, through his journey, had, had played for England at uh, under 14 through to under 19, was at Arsenal, was uh, quite a big uh, fish, so to speak. So I just kind of grew up having that uh, older sibling there. My dad used to run his like junior team when they was younger. Um, my dad used to play for, you know, vet sides over whatever it would have been at that era, over 35s, over 40s. And so I just kind of remember like going around, uh, watching my brother play, watching my dad play. Usually there would be, you know, uh, other kids my age watching their dads and you just end up and, and pick a game up or, or do some finishing games and whatnot. And so I, I have some memories of that more than anything. I remember... I think I joined my first team when I was maybe under eight, um, which in today's age is, is really quite late. Um, and then just, I remember signing for another team that my friend's dad ran and, and then, you know, kind of U10, 11, 12, things started to, to, to get a little more, I don't know if serious is the right word, but just, you know, you, you were aware you were playing with better players against better players and scouts were watching and, I was already attached to Charlton Athletic um, from probably age like seven or eight, but it, it wasn't what it is now. Like that was, you maybe train once a month or come in, you know, on a, on a school holiday or a summer holiday or something. It wasn't like it is now. So I, I knew I was kind of already in those um, areas. And, and then it was about uh, probably under 13 is when my generation, you had to leave playing junior club football and go and play regularly for the professional club football. So at that point is, I think, when the, the seriousness came in and then the, the, the passion started to come in at the same time, my brother was a young pro at Arsenal and in, you know, the, the kind of uh, the rules of engagement there is you always used to get free tickets to watch the first team. So at that period of my life, like 13, 14, 15, um, I'm either watching Arsenal at home where I'm watching Charlton at home every week. So just very quickly, your life revolved around football. You know, I would, I would, you know, live for the weekend and that would be watching, that would be playing. And then you do your training and go again. And and then your life before you know it becomes very much built around the football season. Uh, and then 
admittedly in there with my brother. My brother moved away at 14, 15, 16 to, to go full-time what was in England uh, football school. So it was a national team programme. They relocated um, and then they did schooling and football on a daily basis. And so then it was, I'd go and see my brother once a month or uh, if he had a game plan for England. And so it was just constantly being involved in the game in, in all areas. And um, yeah, it's just kind of carried on you know, ever since, but uh, I, I would, I would probably go back to like under 13 is where I felt like I started to really take a serious interest in it. And I was a, I was a big cricket player when I was younger and, huh. you know, I was kind of given the choice, you know, which, which one do you want to pursue here? You know? And uh, I joke in hindsight, I probably should have picked cricket because I was a decent player as well. Um, but yeah, you know, no regrets, obviously taking the football direction. It's, it's served me very well and, and continues to do so. Yeah, thanks for that background. That's uh, that's a good recollection. I wanted to uh, zoom ahead a little bit. I guess you're sort of left off. You're in your mid-teen years. And, of course, European football, you get associated with clubs. And you mentioned Charlton and uh, who was who you were associated with as a young player. But you ultimately wound up choosing a different path that not a lot of Englishmen or certainly Euros choose, which is to to play college soccer in North America. So how did that come about? Yeah, and... I think now it's a bit more common, but certainly when when I was uh, going through it, yeah, you're right. It wasn't uh, it wasn't quite a, a considered pathway. Um, I think my brother was actually one of the big pushes for me around that time. A move fell through for him to Australia uh, to play professionally, and um, I think there was a little bit of disappointment from from his standpoint. So after I got released, like in you know the young professional. Uh, era I just I really didn't want to drop into semi-professional semi-professional is a tough uh place to play when you're a young kid um you know you've got kind of 25 year olds plus this is you know part of their daily bread is earning this extra income from football um no one really wants to give a chance to a skinny 17 18 19 year old kid um so my, my challenge was, do I, do I kick around in a semi-professional game for three, four years, you know, try and work my way back up or do I try something new? And I'd, I'd always been excited about um, playing abroad, traveling, taking the game somewhere else. And so it's my brother that I think in lieu of his own experiences, he was like, well, why, why don't you look at the, the American scholarship route? Um, so we, he got me started. We found a couple of agencies that, that at the time where it was like one of two, I think, that done it and uh, got the ball rolling. And, and very quickly, I was like, look, your CV is very strong. You're not the atypical player that we usually um, get in these type of things. You'll, you'll, have no, you'll have no problem getting scholarship. And my, my knowledge of it all was very, very limited. Like I wasn't aware of NCAA, Division One, Two, Three, NAIA, you know, the geographics, locations. I, I wasn't aware of any of that. I'd been to America once when I was a kid with football. Um, so I had no idea what I was really getting into. And, you know, fortunately, I, I think I had like six full ride scholarships on the table and it was from anywhere and everywhere. It was in Georgia. Um, it was in Kansas. It was in Texas. It was in Oklahoma. I had no idea about any of them. And the only thing that really connected me was one of the assistant coaches in Oklahoma was, was pretty much from where I was from back home. So, we just clicked, we gelled, you know, I had that sort of comfort with him that, okay, at least he'll help me settle. 
and uh, and and then and yeah, I picked I picked Oklahoma. I think when I look back now, you know, I had San Antonio NCAA Division One from a career perspective that might have been the better route, um, but. I certainly, again, I don't regret uh, any of my choices. It's, it was a fantastic uh, experience. And, you know, that was how I ended up in Oklahoma. And still to this day, that's a very common question is how did you end up in Oklahoma? Yeah. Um, but, yeah, that was the that was the journey. And, uh, you yeah, know, it was many moons ago now. So you're talking about the University of Science and Arts of Oklahoma, which is a mouthful in itself. <laughs> but you, you want, like, where did you slot in on the team initially and um i mean you wound up having quite a career there i believe you're still the school's all-time assist leader if i'm not mistaken yeah i think i'm still hanging on to that one (laughs) so um yeah like did you slot in as a player that got a lot of time right away yeah uh again learning about different sort of cultures uh within settings like obviously when i came in you you still have a lot of nerves like where am i going to fit in with this like all of my experiences playing against american players were they are athletes they are fit they are strong they are big they don't stop um and that's not my game at all nor was it um but i was always very confident in my sort of technical tactical uh, qualities so you didn't know where you was coming in i i never forget the first training session that i had uh you know as a player you, you know you f- you feel it and you could tell the rest of the players were like you know wow we've got a, we've got a top player here and uh, I remember the, the coach saying to me after my first training session, he goes, even if I ever tell you not to, you're taking every free kick, every corner, every penalty. Like, so <laughs> I was like, okay, well, I must have done all right um, today. So, uh, yeah, I came in and look, in, in the American university system, it's there's a big uh, emphasis on like the freshman, the junior, the sophomore, the senior. Like I, that was very strange for me um, because – a lot of the the kind of local recruits, you know, they didn't have a voice. They didn't have opinion. They were completely kind of disregarded with almost anything just because they were a freshman. Mm. And uh, I didn't get that because obviously what, what I got was, you know, well, we've got a really good player on our hands here. So I, I just fitted in straight away, um, you know, started the first game up until my last game for the university. I mean, I'll never forget. It's a funny story. I tell people, I think it was my second game in the season. Uh, I kind of got in a, you know, altercation with a, an Irish player and, you know, something completely normal, uh, certainly from the UK. And my coach subbed me out in like the 30th minute of the game. And so I've gone ballistic because I feel like I'm being subbed after 30 minutes. I'm like, what's going on here? Um, but obviously in the States, there was a there was the substitution rule that you could re-enter and right. all the rest of it. And he said, I'll get you back in. And I said, listen, you know, that might be a rule here, but if if you bring me off, I'm off. I'm not going back in. And and that was the last time I got subbed. And <laughs> and uh, you know, when when fit and I was fit for the vast majority of my playing career, I I, I played every game and you know, and the awards followed, which was very nice, of course, of you know, in this, it was a Sooner Athletic Conference team of the year. And I think the regional team I got in once and then I was a twice uh, NAIA All-American. So, uh, yeah, I, hopefully I repaid repaid that to the, the program and, and the coach. Uh, someone else that you met uh, at USAO uh, is essentially the reason why you wind up in the Vancouver area. So tell us about that. Yeah, again, you know, a, a truly bizarre uh, sort of series of events. Um 
my wife, well, her sister was at the school first. Her sister came about maybe two years into I was there and, and uh, we just, you know, we just kind of, there was, a, there was a good connection between the softball and, and the soccer teams for whatever reason at our university. And that's why she was there to play. And that, uh, oh, you know, tongue in cheek, her sister was coming down to visit to maybe play softball as well. And um, it all coincided with my last semester at the university. <laughs> You're going to have to cut me off there. Hang on. <laughs> it leaves us. It's good color. Yeah. Let's get in. I'm trying to be nice, keep him out in the in the sunshine and I'll, I'll put him inside. <laughs> I think he showed up in one of our earlier interviews as well. He did. Honestly, like he's, he's, <laughs> he's so good. And every now and then something just triggers him and they will go mad. Yeah, so yeah. we'll restart. So yeah, anyway, so, um, so yes, yeah, she said that my, you know, her sister was coming down to, to visit and play and it coincided with my last semester at the school. And at that time I had an opportunity to move schools which would have kept me in university for a little bit longer, but I was, I was ready to, you know, do my last playing semester and then graduate. Um, at that time, I'd already started to communicate with the Vancouver Whitecaps about coming up to trial. So that was already in the pipeline. And uh, then as we, you know, we, we start talking and we, and we start dating and whatnot, um, you know, I kind of piece it together that she's from Vancouver and, you know, Vancouver Whitecaps. So, and I'm, I'm, I'll never forget asking her this. I said, well, where do you live? And she said, Coquitlam. And I said, is that anywhere near the Vancouver Whitecaps? And she goes, I think her response was, I think so. And uh, <laughs> so <laughs> I messaged the coach and I said, well, look, I said, I might be coming up to visit uh, at, at the end of the, the year, uh, you know, Coquitlam, Vancouver Whitecaps, is it close? You know, give me an idea. And of course, this was before everything's available on iPhones and Googles and all the rest of it. And um, and he said, well, yeah, we actually train in Coquitlam. In the off-season, we train up at SFU. So I said, okay, great. I said, well, I'm coming up to visit. Why don't I come in for a couple of training sessions? And then, uh, you know, I'll be back in the new year for pre-season. So uh, he said, yeah, great. I came in, uh, did, a, I think, about a week training. Um, they said, yeah, look, we, we like what we see. Come back for pre-season in, I think it was like March time, February, March, can't remember now. But, uh, and that was that. And then, you know, now my wife and I at the time, we kind of decided, well, where do we go from here? She was due to go back to Oklahoma, but decided she didn't want to go. Then I went back to England and, uh, and then I came back in March for pre-season. And uh, yeah, the, the rest they say is history. I mean, I, I, I did really well again, but just for whatever reason in, in this um, sport that it is, it, I, I didn't get signed, but I was pushing, I think I was 23 maybe, going on 23. I can't remember the timelines, but I just kind of felt I had to make a decision here of whether to just admit that perhaps my glorious playing career isn't going to happen and and maybe start getting into coaching a bit more full time. And so, yeah, like with, with my wife being from here and visiting and the moment I visited Vancouver, I was like, this is an amazing place. Like this is, this is probably something I've been searching for my whole time on my travels. And uh, I just made the decision that here's regardless of what happens with, you know, with uh, obviously my wife now, but girlfriend at the time, regardless of football, uh, I felt like this was the right place to be and and try and make things um, 
happen. And yeah, that was uh, 15 years ago now. So pretty amazing that we met there because for sure, I'd, like if, if I hadn't have met my wife in Oklahoma, I don't know if I would have made that choice to stay in Vancouver. Um, so it certainly, I think, cemented me going, yeah, you know what, it's time just to settle down and, and get on with life and, and start a new plan. Follow the Blues on Twitter and Instagram under the handle at Capilano Blues. And while you're at it, help us grow our audience. Please rate, review, and recommend us on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. That's a great reflection. Thanks for for sharing that story of your of your journey here to Vancouver. And um, I guess I want to kind of fast forward through. Uh, I mean, I know you spent some time coaching in the Whitecaps, and you can talk about some other coaching experience. But I do want to get to how you make the connection with Canada soccer and how you wind up uh, getting over to Tokyo for the Olympics this past summer. So I don't know if there's a way you can put that all into words, like how you. Uh, made those coaching connections and how you got onto the staff. But if you could, I'll let you have a go at it. Yeah. And, and look, you know, I, I think in every profession, you know, you always hear the, the, the phrase of CV building and, and whatnot. Um, I've been very lucky. I'd got on my coaching ladder very early, 17, 18, 19. I, I got some significant coaching awards and uh, I'd already had a, a little interaction coaching for Charlton Athletic and then coaching for, for Arsenal. And that was more through connections that, that myself and my brother had had uh, for our own upbringing. I made the move to Vancouver. And from that point, my objective was, was to work for the Vancouver Whitecaps. And I got in um, in various levels, various age groups. And after about three years, I was just getting to the point where like, I, I need something more here. And out of nowhere, this opportunity came up to, to go and run uh, an academy for Arsenal in Greece. And of course, you know, as, as it seems to happen sometimes in this sport, that was the same time that the Vancouver Whitecaps had offered me the first full-time contract. And being a big Arsenal supporter and the chance to move again and live in Greece, and this time now my fiancé come with me, we just felt like well, this is a brilliant opportunity to go and try something new and different. But, you know, this is big. This is big working for Arsenal Football Club. So... We took that opportunity, spent almost two years there. And, and then, you know, when I come back, you, you worry, am I, am I on the blacklist now because I've, I've turned down a job at Vancouver Whitecaps? And, and it took really another couple of years to, to get back in. Where the connection to the Olympics kind of happened is, I, I think when I first came back into the women's program at uh, the Rex program at Vancouver Whitecaps, I was working for the Whitecaps, but it was very much a, a CSA-driven um, sort of curriculum. And Bev Priestman, who is now the head coach, was in charge of sort of uh, quality control with the rec centre. So that's where we first met. Um, and, you know, she would have had uh, a little bit of a, an insight knowledge working with, you know, her partner, Emma Humphreys, who's now back at the, the Whitecaps, um, but also got a chance to watch me coach and, and uh, very quickly from that program, I actually moved on to the boys' side. So I went into the under-17s full-time. Um, and, and just during those years, you know, Bev then moved to the FA to work with the England women's team. Uh, we'd stayed in touch with Bev and Emma and all what they was doing. And, you know, they notified that they was looking to come back. And then Bev got the national team job. And 
And really, it was a little bit of a surprise element to it. Um, Bev just gave me a call just before Christmas last year and, and just said, look, there, there might be an opportunity to join the staff. Uh, would you would you be interested in it? Um, we'd look at really just up until and including the Olympics. And uh, of course, I jumped it. We'd just come off the back of some COVID restrictions. And I thought this was perfect timing for me as well. And uh, yeah, so when we spoke in the new year, it was you know, a kind of technical assistant role, um, a fly in, fly out, if you will, just helping support the, the coach and head coach, uh, sorry, assistant coach, um, delivering sessions on the collective standpoint, but then trying to get into the finer details with individuals. So that was the link. That was the connection. First camp was February. You know, you're really just trying to establish yourself as part of the the group. And uh, yeah, it got, got all the way into Tokyo and obviously what unfolded after that. No, I appreciate that. And we'll talk more about Tokyo in detail here. But one thing I remember you saying when you returned home is just how restrictive everything was when you got to Tokyo. I mean, I think you compared your early days there to kind of like being in a penitentiary. <laughs> You're not really allowed to go anywhere or even outside. So yeah. maybe you set the scene of uh, arriving and how you guys got settled where you were going to be staying. Yeah, there was a lot of, I think there's a lot of apprehension about what we faced you know, uh, against coming in, uh, we had a week in Irvine in California before flying to Japan and, you know, things, I wouldn't say things were normal in Irvine. We still very much had our own bubble that we were adhering to, but, um, they was kind of at the stage where, you know, if you'd had your vaccination, you didn't need a mask. People were in restaurants, they were in bars. So really normal and, and more normal at that stage than what BC was. Um, but we was we was all a little bit too frightened to really go out there just in case, you know, just in case then we someone got COVID or got in the camp and, and you ended up missing your Olympics. So we really started off quite closed anyway, but we knew it was going to get tougher when we got to Japan because at least when we was in Irvine, you know, we went to the beach, we walked along the beach one day, you could go for a run outside, um, you know, you'd go and grab a coffee and, and go for a walk. Um, we kind of heard that we weren't going to be able to do that, but I don't think we really knew what we was going into. Very tough when we, when we arrived, a lot of protocols to go through, uh, lots of screening, lots and lots of waiting. Um, probably was a, a 25, six hour travel day. I think the time we got to the hotel and then the next day it kind of really set in that we was all booked on a certain floor so we could move freely around the hotel floor, but we couldn't take elevators by ourselves. We couldn't take stairwells by ourselves. We could only go into the meeting room or um, the meal room. And that was the only three places we were allowed to go in the entire hotel. We couldn't go outside. We couldn't go for a walk. We couldn't go in the lobby. We couldn't just go for a wander. Um, so it was really, really tough uh, to begin with. And we all made we all made this sort of conscious effort to, to respect the rules, but we also were aware, like, we need to make sure that we can distract not just the players, but everybody from these rules. Cause it would be really difficult for anybody to live in that bubble for six weeks. And, and that just became the normal. It became frustrating. Of course, um, things eased off a little bit um, as the weeks went on. But I think what sa saved us is we had so many hotel changes that there was, there wasn't a, enough time to get really down about where we were um, because I think the moment we all started to have enough, we, you know, we get on the bus, we get on the plane and we go to a new 
hotel and new training center and new stadium. And so I think we just had some extra distractions along the way. But yeah, and up until we we left, um, it was only once we got in the Olympic Village that the Olympic Village was a compound, but you had freedom within the village. So you could go for a run, you could go for a walk, you could go and grab a coffee in the mill room, um, have a sunbathe if you want outside. Uh, those four days were amazing compared to the five and a half weeks before it. But I'm sure if if you was an athlete in the Olympic Village for four and a half weeks, you you would have found that very tedious as well because it was a you know maybe a five kilometer area that you was able to move around, but we even found out in the two days, three days we were there, you know, once you've been to the meal room, once you've been to get a coffee, once you've been to the, the shop inside, there was nowhere else to go. Um, so really, really tough just on everybody, um, all athletes, all coaches, um, and, and sort of kudos for, for those that will be able to come through it. So obviously you as coaches need to provide leadership to get your team through that. Can you point out some of the personalities on the team that maybe you got to know or that were instrumental in that, that early part. I mean, I think of, I think of Christine Sinclair, but she's pretty serious. I think of Desiree Scott, cause she's a veteran, maybe a little more bubbly, but I don't know if it was them or the others, like who can you point to that was kind of effervescent and helped help through that stage from the player side? Yeah. I, I think of course you always look to the experience in the room. Um, you know, Sinky, as you mentioned, Desiree Scott, fantastic behind the scenes for for the group. Um, you know, Sophie Schmidt in there as well, Alyssa Chapman, you know, the, the experienced players for sure that are, are looked up um, by the younger ones in the group and even the, the middle-aged, uh, well, middle-aged in football terms, but the mid-20s uh, players. So there, there was that... Um, there was that sort of security and blanket of, of those players that have been there and done it. There were some players in that middle ground that had been to Olympics before. Um, this one was very different. And then we had a bunch of new players that this is their first time Olympics. So that's always the challenge in a, in a group dynamic. You've got, you know, 18, 19 year olds and 36, 37 year olds. And, you know, as we all know, everyone's on different stages of their lives. And the older players did a, a really good job of, grounding and, and keeping the young ones focused on what they're doing, trying to alleviate some of the pressure of it. Uh, as I said, Desiree Scott was, was instrumental behind the scenes. She's, you know, the kind of mumsy character, if you will, of, of the people, um, but also vastly experienced. who has been there and done it. Um, and I think people started to recognize as we went on that, you know, maybe non-football stuff might be really important here. And so Robin Gow was a former player who's kind of head of culture, but, Daily had the players doing some activities, whether it was a board game, whether it was yoga, whether it was a reading time, um, did some painting, colouring, you know, just creating some distractions. Melissa Tancredi was another former player, uh, chiropractor in there, you know, getting together some quiz nights and silly things and like that. And uh, and then, you know, Desi and I can take a little bit of uh, satisfaction that we decided to to get a, a Mario Kart competition going once we knew Desi had bought uh, the Nintendo Switch with us. And it was just something that created distractions for the, for the rest of the group. And I think just helped bind the group a little bit differently outside of football, because obviously on the pitch and meetings and presentations, you, you know, you're getting a good grasp of what, what we need to do, what we want to do on the pitch. But I think just trying to make it as normal as we possibly could away from it, um, you know, was, was a key component of our success and all of the players but particularly the older players um, managed to be creative in in finding those little niches 
No, that's a great way to set the scene of you know, what we're getting into, which is I want to talk about the football on the pitch. And um, do you recall uh, the feeling around the team going into your first match? And can you take us through who that was against and maybe talk a bit about the those those qualifying games and then we'll get into the, the medal stage after that? Yeah, so f- and first game um, was the host Japan. Um, technically, it was the it was the host game, the the, the kickoff match. Uh, Japan is a you know fantastic uh, footballing team, host nation, going to want to do really really well. The only thing that of course was such a shame there was no spectators in the in the stands because that would have been packed to the rafters. Um, we knew that was going to be a tough game. We we knew. They would be a very technical team, but just don't possess the same athleticism as sort of North America does. Um, it was one-one, probably a fair result. We we came away a little bit disappointed from that result, but as a staff, we we didn't want to be too negative because we're like, look, at the end of the day, this is a point against the host nation. This is a this is a solid start. Um, we had Chile in the second game, uh, a team that we were expected to beat, um, probably should have been more comfortable than what it was. But, you know, after two games, we'd practically secured qualification, four points, just because of the, the best third place scenario. And then the last game was GB. And I, I'd watched GB play a couple of times and I thought they would be one of the favourites for the tournament. They was they were quite predictable, but very good at what they'd done. And, uh, yeah, I mean, they scored a probably an equaliser in the last five minutes. They, they celebrated like they had, won the tournament so I actually think that was a, a big moment for us as a group to say you know look how Team GB celebrated against us getting the draw now we also know at the time what that meant was GB would win the group we would finish second um, but uh, we, we I think we kind of took that as a little bit of some praise for us so we get to knockouts and it's Brazil and uh, you know we've already played Brazil two times before that and each game was so tight. It was so tight. I, if I could, if I was a betting man to say that that game would have gone to penalties, I probably would have put money on it. We, we had a feeling that that might take all the way to win that game. And, uh, and so it did. And I think there was more pressure on that game because you lose that game, you go home. It's a quote unquote failure. You win that game. You have two opportunities to play for a medal. And, and I think at that point, that was when it became really real. Um, the magnitude of where we are, then of course we knew we was going to get drawn against the United States. And uh, then I would say it definitely amped up, you know, five or six levels after we won that Brazil game. Uh, Jessie Fleming, we got to talk about her. Did you know as a staff that, that PKs were kind of a secret weapon of hers and that she'd be a go-to person for that? Yeah, we, honestly, we'd practiced so much. Um, from the moment we was in California, we'd, we'd said to the players, uh, listen, practice between two and three penalties a day. So, you know, six weeks down the line, you've, you've hit a lot of penalties. You've repeated the walk, you know, your own coping strategies, you're taking of the breath, uh, you know, to be really focused and zoned in on that. So we'd kept a tally of players' daily penalties scores, misses, uh, all the way through up. So we knew where he was at. And then again, once we got to the knockout stages, we started doing it more serious in training of doing the whole team, lining up, doing the walk. And so we practiced that probably once or twice before each of the knockout games. And uh, yeah, and Jesse 
was one that uh, stepped up a lot to take it. We, we tracked the numbers, good consistency in scoring. You know, at the end of the day, you can never truly replicate taking a penalty like you have to when it's in a shootout, whether it's in a big game moment. But uh, our numbers were good. Our consistency was good. And, you know, I think uh, to have the confidence and bravery to go up and, and do what she'd done, um, yeah, r- real credit to her. And, and then a nice boost for the staff too, because, you know, Michael Norris, who's goalkeeping coach, was really in charge of the, the penalty taking and, the, you know, the roster and who done what and where and how often. And so then it's nice to see the staff members uh, be rewarded as well for their for their work. So, yeah, it was great all round to see Jesse and, and obviously the staff and the team be successful because they'd worked hard at it. So your role through this time, I believe, if I'm not mistaken, you were kind of the eye in the sky, headset on, up high above the pitch, uh, probably talking to the coaching staff from what you see from a vantage point. So is that where you were for each and every game? Yep. Um, and to be honest, it's a, it's a role I enjoy. Uh, again, in my previous experiences when I was at the Whitecaps, I, I used to, when we moved to the new training ground, I used to watch the first half up above in the balcony. And uh, I just find it gives you more perspective more clarity you don't emotionally get involved in the game like when you're on the sideline you know you're screaming and shouting that whoever and usually the poor player that's right in front of you gets the brunt of it um when you're up high you see you know the global objectives you see what what we're doing what we're not doing and and obviously with the opposition as well so i'd be up there you know i would check in with the with the assistant coach on the bench um, of some things that I'm seeing, good, bad, indifferent, some strengths, weaknesses of either us or the opponent to get that message down. They would obviously message back up to me and say that we're feeling this on the ground level. What do you see up there? Um, and then between the assistant coach and I, we would have that communication and, and we would then filter through what we felt was important uh, for Bev as the head coach to to work on. But uh, yeah, I, I loved it. Um, you know, I know it's a, a valuable tactical kind of insight uh, being up that high but uh, we flowed very well as a technical team you know our processes were clean we were on the same page we we knew what we wanted collectively and um, yeah in the end again we we delivered well. Uh, so Jesse Fleming's PK work gets you through the U.S. and into the gold medal game. But before we talk about that I, I wanted to ask you about Christine Sinclair because she just she's a legend she's maybe the best to ever do it. Um, she didn't have the kind of Olympics that she had in London or maybe even Rio, but what does her presence in the lineup allow you to do as a staff? I think I heard you say maybe a decoy is the wrong word, but the kind of respect that she yeah. garnered from the opponents, what did it allow you to do? Absolutely. Um, you know, look, it, it, as players, your game constantly changes as you get older and, you know, you have to modify and you have to find a different niche. Um, you know, with Sinki, a hold-up play is still fantastic. Uh, having worked with her regularly, she's the best finisher still that I've seen. Uh, everything's on target. Most of the time, it's a goal. So if you give her the ball in the right area, she'll be she'll be absolutely, you know, um, clinical and uh, and get what you need, which is scoring goals. Now, with this Olympics, and I don't have you know too much of the experiences before, but a role change, you would drop a little bit deeper uh, to collect the ball and maybe it'd be a bit more of a playmaker. But we also wanted to try and get her on the end of actions because she, you know, she was a ruthless finisher when given the chance. So 
Um, I think that was what we had geared for the role. At the moment she stepped on the pitch, you could tell the fear factor from the opposition towards her. Um, so much respect, you know, probably too much respect in, in some aspects uh, from, from, you know, my opinion, from what their perspective should have been. But she, she was always the target. She was always the focal point. They always knew um, that she was still going to be the one to handle. But I just think it opened up a little bit of freedom elsewhere. And, um, you know, to give Janine Becky a, a bit of a license, Michelle Prince a license to, to really go on. And behind the scenes, I think it was like extremely um, encouraging and complimentary for these players of, you know, this is, this is your time. This is your time to do it. Um, and so, yeah, I just think it was a good blend in the end of the experience, the youth, the, the reputations, but the, you know, sort of the, the humbleness of, of the group and uh, very much the vibe is, is about Canada. I have to say about this group of uh, players, they're very proud to represent their country. They're very happy to team up with each other and uh, you could see it on the pitch, but of course, a lot of that comes with the, the encouragement and the confidence from the older players, in, including Christine Sinclair. Yeah, I appreciate that. Uh, talking about Christine, she obviously deserves such huge respect, but um, I wanted to talk specifically now about the gold medal match against Sweden. Uh, I don't think the possession arrow was probably at the end of the day quite in the favor of Canada, but what allowed Canada to sort of bend but not break? What do you kind of give that? What do you chalk that up to? Yeah, it's a really fair point. Um, I'd watched Sweden play I think this, I'd watched them on video. I think it was the US game. They'd come out of the traps of being 3-0 and I watched them twice after that. And for me, Sweden were the best team in the tournament. I think Sweden and GB were probably the two best teams that I saw. Uh, I liked the way that they played, the way they were set up, the way they were structured um, to transition and counter-attack, I thought, was uh, very, very smart. So we'd spoke a lot about Sweden, of course, leading into the final. We knew what their strengths were very evident what their strengths were. We also pinpointed where we think their weaknesses would be. And of course, the game plan is, is to nullify um, their strengths and then execute on their weaknesses. And uh, the first 25 minutes, I mean, uh, we were both Neil, uh, Juice Nip, the assistant coach and I were, were, were doing our heading on the, on the radios because everything we'd spoken about not doing, we did. And, we we were just giving opportunities to Sweden to counter, you know, after counter, after counter. And I remember saying to Neil, I'm like, we can't keep doing this. The next one's going to be a goal. And sure enough, it, it was the goal. And coming in at halftime at 1-0, um, I think probably saved us. So credit to the players that they didn't buckle. They were strong. They were resilient. They didn't concede that second goal. Um, and they managed that moment quite well to get in to reset and I remember coming down from up top and, I, and saying to the rest of the staff I said the biggest victory for us is the fact that it's 1-0 and we're still very much in this game so we spoke about making some changes again from what I felt like could make a difference from up top we, we made the changes at half time uh, totally changed the dynamic of the game for 25 minutes or so um, get the penalty and and Midway through that second half, I, I felt we were the best team for 20 minutes. And then the momentum shifted again, and then it was kind of get to get to extra time. Um, 
I came down. It was the only game I came down uh, halfway through it, extra time to kind of sit a little bit behind the bench. And yeah, it was a it was a backs against the walls job. We were just waiting for you know one or two transition moments to get us up the pitch, and they were they were nearly moments. But then of course we go to the penalties. But I felt I felt extremely confident with the penalties based on the fact that you know we'd we'd been successful before. We'd gone through that process and. Um, you know, when the, the the Swedish players had a couple of misses, you think, well, that's it. It's it's easy. It's done for us. And uh, it's probably one of the most exciting penalty shootout competitions ever because I think we missed three in the end. And I, I, it's got to be unheard of that you miss three penalties and still win a penalty shootout. But uh, it happened. I had a real strong gut feeling of when their captain went up to, to win it that she wasn't going to score. Don't ask me why. It was just a weird sixth sense that I had that I didn't believe she was going to score that penalty the Amrose makes a an excellent penalty to keep us in it uh then Steph makes the save and it's up to you know young Julia Grosso I think 20 years of age to step up to win a gold medal and after all that had unfolded before I'm like there's no way that this is not going in and uh you know the rest is history well, I, I, I love the way you took us through that um, to talk about Steph LeBay for a bit, have you ever seen a keeper apparently seem to revel in PKs as much as she appeared to really enjoy being in it? Yeah. I mean, they're a different bunch goalies, aren't they? Anyway, I think that's uh, all the way throughout football. We always say that, but really good goalkeeping crew uh, that that we had in the camp, real good energy and vibes together and they push each other. And, and again, with Mike Norris, the goalie coach, uh, they, they, they did some fantastic work. I think Steph enjoyed it as it, as it went on more and more, you know, uh, which is funny to see in some players because you can see players when pressure becomes, you know, increased that the the nervousness, the anxiety is, um, stress levels kind of go up a little bit. But I felt with Steph, she actually started to enjoy it more, and the confidence of the Brazil uh, penalty shootout win, the saves that she was making in open play, like you could just see the confidence level all the time rising, rising, rising. So. I think she absolutely reveled in the in the final. That was her moment. She made some massive saves, and uh, yeah, brilliant to see. You know, absolutely brilliant to see. Just any one, any one of your players um, having having that sense of responsibility and and sort of pride in what they what they've done. But yeah, she was in beast mode, and and all credit to her. Well, it was, a, it was a beautiful day and it was probably one of the highlights of my summer. I set my alarm clock to be up at five in the morning, our time to get up and watch the game. And I'm so glad that I did. It was uh, a highlight of my of my watching of the Olympics and maybe of my whole summer. But uh, it was um, it was such a thrill to see and obviously to know that you were there and you and I had exchanged a couple messages. And yep. it was just such a such a high that, that, that uh, I think we all felt as a nation that day. And um yeah, I just really appreciate you reliving it with us. Uh, I wanted to ask you a couple more things uh, before we finish up here. So, I mean, it was not long after uh, after you win the gold medal. You're on a plane back home to Vancouver, kind of a whirlwind. Did you find it difficult in any way to return to your role at CapU and to go from the highs of world football and a gold medal to return to like the nuts and bolts of managing, you know, an elite level football team, a men's team? Um, but maybe that's not in quite the same realm with televised games and, and all that. Was it a difficult transition in any way back? Yeah. Um, and I think probably the hardest thing was, and and I knew when I'd committed to all of this, that there was an opportunity that 
couldn't be missed, but there was potential that it would be very, very condensed. And, you know, and the way the football season works in, in any of the community streams, like you get that summer as your break. And that's your, that's your time. I'm very fortunate in the summer. I get, you know, a good three, four weeks to really unwind, spend with the family, um, you know, take the, the holidays, va- vacations. And then, you know, you know, once early August comes in, it's, it's pre-season. It's just the way it is. And, and, and you reset. I knew that if we went all the way, I wasn't going to have that. And really then I'd gone straight from, you know, you get your spring break week off um, all the way through. And I knew I was knew I was going to go all the way through the Olympics. Of course, if you win, you medal, you come back and go right back into the next bit. So I was, I was struggling with that because I, I got back on the Saturday and we'd, we'd actually got our boys together for a couple of games for that week. And I was never, I was never meant to come in that week. I just wanted to take that week to, you know, reconnect with the family and whatnot, but just because it was new, it was new players coming in. I just felt like I needed to be around. And so I, I on the Tuesday, I, I was back in watching the guys play one of their like, sort of off season warm-up games. And, um, and then it was the next one. And then I came in on the next one. So I, I, I was in right away. So it was really difficult and probably more for me, a little bit of guilt with the family because it was incredibly tough for me, but incredibly tough for my wife. My two kids would be away for that long. And we missed what we usually have, which is a real strong reconnect as a family in, the, in that summer holiday. And I came back in and, you know, my wife's wanting the break, of course. Uh, my kids want to be with me, but I'm I'm out the door as quick as I've come back in it, and uh, so that was that was really tough. So, not so much. I don't think it's so much of like re- readjusting and readapting to to different levels of the game. It was more of just not being able to like mentally reset and switch off and digest and decompress all those words um, to then go again. It's just morphed one into one and. Uh, that's probably been the, the toughest part. You want to give your best for all of the players, all of the teams that you coach. And, you know, just my own pride and standards is I want to do it to the highest level that I can. Um, but that's obviously meant, you know, sacrificing some probably much needed downtime and family time in that same period. So I think it's more of just uh, let's let's push through you know probably another couple of months with everything here and until the christmas break but uh yeah that's probably been the biggest adjustment i would say is just not being able to reset and, and just kind of switch off for a little bit i appreciate you being candid about that and that reflection is um i appreciate you taking the time to explain that it's uh yeah it's real life but um but just before we finish up here i wanted to get your thoughts on the pack west season so far you're Five games in as of right now, which this season is more than halfway in a nine-game year. What are your what are your uh, what are your reactions to this point? This team sits two and three. It wasn't great results most recently, but maybe just give me your thoughts as to how the season started off. Yeah, I, I think uh, it's been such a long time being out of this league and this level. And obviously, when I was there, that was you know there was there was Quantland, there was Quest, there was. UBCO, UMBC, TRU. So the league's changed a lot, obviously, since I was last in it. Um, it's never easy to play the same teams in quick succession. And I think, you know, for, for 60 minutes after the first game, I'm like, oh, wow, like, you know, we, we've got a top, top team here. And that ended up being 4-3. And, and then the next week, 
solid win against Langera. I felt we was comfortable. Go away to VIU. I felt we was quite unfortunate against VIU. Probably, probably should have drew the game at a minimum, if not more. So, I felt super confident that you know we'd we've got everything together. We're the guys in a, in a in a good spot. I had said to some of the other coaches, I feel like this league might be a league that everybody beats everybody. And um, and then of course we go into this last weekend. We you know, probably deserve a draw in both games, if I'm being honest. And then now we could be sitting here with, you know, if I think what we deserve to have got, which is probably two wins and three draws, uh, we're probably sitting there being all right with things. Now we find ourselves in fourth position out of four um, under a little bit of pressure now. So uh, I think it's a, it's a crash bang wallop league. Um, I don't think there's any time for form. I don't think it's something that you can build in and look to peak, um, you know, at the right times. You know, generally you kind of have those type of mindsets in a 10-month season. Um, this is fast and furious. It's double headers. You know, for me, I, I think the, the double header defies a lot of logic. Um, coming into the league again this year with only four teams, I, I think the Sunday is... It's almost a write-off in some respects. It becomes a battle. It becomes just finding a way to win ugly, which there's nothing wrong in doing that as a part of developing into adult football. But um, what I'm hoping, of course, at this stage is there's going to be another topsy-turvy four or five games left where some people will beat some people and they might lose to someone else. And we know what's at stake. Um, fourth place doesn't, doesn't make it into the semi-final. So at the very minimum, we want to make sure that we're in that semi-final game. Um, we know if we win our game in hand, so to speak, uh, we're right back in the mix and that game in hand will be taking points off of VIU. So we know the two games coming up against VIU are also super important, um, you know, but because it's only the three teams, they're all important. Every single one of them is important. So could we win out? Yeah. Could we get some up and down? Yeah. Could we Could we not win? Uh, I guess we could as well. We've we've shown that already. So I think unpredictable um, and we just got to find a way to to get it done and, and put ourselves in the best position we can be in. But I'm, I'm confident with the group. Right? I think we have a very strong start in 11. I think we have some initial strength off the bench and I think we have some some big guns that, uh, that everyone else doesn't have. But of course, the, the magic formula is making sure we get those guys in dangerous positions to, to make that happen. I want to finish off with just some of uh, your takes on the world of football. Who's the uh, best footballer of all time? Oh, I mean, it wasn't really my era, but you, you were very much aware of obviously Pele and Maradona. Uh, the, the current debate is, you know, Ronaldo and Messi. Um, for me personally, I was very privileged to to watch Dennis Bergkamp uh, up close and personal for the best part of seven, eight years. And if I had to pick a single player that influenced me the most on the game of football, it was him. He was he was just a genius. And again, being in the, the eye in the sky of watching in the stadium, I I was mesmerized how this guy managed to see different passes, different angles, different passing lanes, the weight of pass from you can tell a position that no one else even thought about, never, never mind saw and never mind executed. So for me, that was a player that I got to watch firsthand that I would say 
like that was a next level of player. And and I think a lot of people around football would probably put Dennis Bergkamp in the top 10 to 20 list of all time anyway, but that's certainly my one. No, appreciate that. Um, who is the best player that you have shared the pitch with either as a teammate or opponent, and you can go coaching or playing. I have, I have, a, I have several that, that stand out for me. Um, when I was playing, uh, I was very lucky to play against Sevilla in an international tournament once. And there was a player called Jose Antonio Reyes. And uh, he ended up actually signing for Arsenal when he was about 21, I think. Uh, played for Real Madrid, Spain. Um, unfortunately, he passed away a couple of years ago in a, in a car accident. But he was another level of player. Um, you know, I, I never walked around thinking I was good or I was at a great level, but I'm like, this guy's next level. He was one, played against Wayne Rooney when he would have been about, he would have been 13 playing against us as 14, because I think he's a year below my age group. Um, guy scored a hat-trick in like seven minutes. And like, that was another one that was unbelievable. More closer to, to home on a regular basis, David Bentley played for Arsenal. And I actually thought he would be, the next Dennis Bergkamp at Arsenal had a great career, played for England, um, but just didn't quite mat- materialise. Uh, and then Jermaine Pennant, I was very lucky to play against when I was younger. And at that age, at 15, he got signed by Arsenal for a million pounds at 15. And I played against him in his first game in the youth team for Arsenal. And again, scored a hat-trick in about 10 minutes. Uh, it was just another level player. So those ones that stand out for me, I think on a, on a, on a playing perspective, um, on a coaching perspective, I don't know. It's 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 quite a tough one because I think everyone uh, has got different attributes that, that you play against. Um, and that one would be more more challenged to to find out. Obviously, with Vancouver Whitecaps, we we play against some players that are, that have gone on and done very well. Uh, there was a boy called Andrew Colton who was Atlanta. Um, and then obviously, you know, from our own domestic uh, promotion, Alfonso Davis, you know, he was a pretty special player at 15. You could see he had something different to, to other players. So that's certainly probably in the biggest high, high profile uh, player that I've coached today, I would say. Thanks for that. I wanted to, uh, I wanted to finish up with something I've asked everybody on our podcast so far, which um is a binge-worthy television show that you might recommend. It comes to mind that you might throw Ted Lasso out there. I don't know if you've watched it. <laughs> but have, uh, yeah. <laughs> if it's that one or if there's another show that you and the family or you and your wife enjoy that uh, you would recommend as a binge-worthy television show. I'll cheat here. I've got a couple because I've got into the the, the shows with the kids of uh, Alone or Naked and Afraid, very much, uh, you know, kind of uh, survivalist shows. Um so that's ones that we kind of watch as a family. The wife and I got into one, uh, which was Yellowstone. I don't know if you've if you've seen that one. It's Kevin Costner about. Uh, okay. I've heard of it. Almost, I haven't watched it. Yeah, yeah. It's it's almost like a like a gangster family type plot, but it's in a kind of rural. I think it's Montana. They got a farm, um, but it's kind of edging you that sort of way of like a you know a cowboy farming mafia type world and uh, so we watched I think we watched four series in the space of about two weeks and I think we were promised that the fifth season is out in October or maybe even September October it hasn't come out yet so 
that's the one that uh, the wife and I are a, a little bit keen on on coming out. Well, I appreciate the recommendation. I'll have to look that one up. But uh, uh, I think that kind of takes us to the end of our run here today. You've recounted a lot uh, from your from your football life that you've lived and continue to live. Um, I appreciate you taking the time and uh, look forward to seeing you and the Blues back on the pitch after Thanksgiving. Absolutely, yeah. Thanksgiving. Looking forward to it. And uh, thanks again, Brent. There it is, episode seven in the books. And we want to thank Blues men's soccer head coach Adam Day for sharing his story. I want to thank you for listening and encourage you to rate and review us on iTunes and Spotify and continue to look for us next time on iTunes and Spotify from the CAPU Department of Athletics and Recreation. This is Brent Mutis. We'll see you next time.